Hi, and welcome to the Thrive Alcohol Free podcast. I'm Dupe, Dupe Witherick, alcohol free wellbeing and transformational coach, and the best selling author of A Cocktail of Clarity How to Ditch Drinking, Embody a Joyful New Identity, and Thrive Alcohol Free. This podcast will show you that being alcohol free is not what the traditional narrative says. And even though alcohol is so ingrained in our society that it is okay to give yourself permission to stop drinking if you want to. And you do not have to wait until you hit rock bottom. It is certainly not boring. And I believe ditching drinking is just the start to living an extraordinary life. By getting rid of this one thing, it allows the doors to open to endless possibilities and opportunities. Each week, we will have guests on who are at various stages of the alcohol-free journey, from those who are curious to those who have been alcohol-free for years. We will also have experts on talking about different topics relating to alcohol and beyond. Through these conversations, you will discover what it means to thrive alcohol-free enjoy. Hi and welcome to the latest episode of Thrive Alcohol Free podcast. I am Dupe, your host, and I'm so pleased you are here and listening. Um, I hope you've had a good week and that, you know, whatever's whatever's happened this week, all I'd like to say, I was thinking about gratitude earlier and I think we can have the worst days and just because you're alcohol free it doesn't mean that everything is hunky-dory um so you know we all go through ups and downs and i always try to think about things that i'm grateful for no matter what's happened in the day at the end of the day i try to think of five to ten things that i'm grateful for and that generally helps me to finish the day on a positive note but also to reflect and to sleep better probably as well so if you are thinking about something you can do if you've not had the best day I hope you have even if you have had the best day why not get into the habit of writing things down that you're grateful for anyway that probably leads on to our the conversation I have with our guests this week and we do talk about self-care and I absolutely think gratitude is a mode of self-care but I will be introducing Jill Mackay who is a fellow coach and we have a really interesting conversation um, around various topics but Jill is a coach who helps professional successful midlife women to break free from the hold of alcohol and start living a life on their terms a life they don't want to escape from and she's also she's also got background in neuroscience and so is a mental health first aider and a best-selling author of stuck brain smart insights for coaches She's currently writing her second book as well, which is Freedom, Design the Alcohol-Free Life of Your Dreams, which she shares her own story, her own journey, and um, provides a framework for the listeners, for the readers to, to use when they are ready to do the same. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Jill. Hi, so welcome, Jill. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, why don't we start with you introducing yourself and telling us a bit about your story? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jube, for welcoming me. I'm delighted to be part of this podcast. I always love talking to you and uh, 
really pleased to support you with this. I love your podcast already. It's fantastic. Thank you. Yes. So I am Jill Mackay. Um, and like you, I'm a sober coach and I'm, it always sort of gives me a bit of a tingle when I say that, you know, who would have known six years ago or six and a half years ago that I would be saying those words, that those words would be leaving my, my mouth. And because it was six and a half years ago that I finally put the sort of demon booze to bed and uh, did, did, did the, the whole divorcing of the demon booze of the Sauvignon Blanc and I got my decree absolute on the same day nice iron absolute on the same day it went <laughs> and it was done I, I divorced the toxic substance so I had um, I think really I've been drinking for decades absolutely decades my um, parents, and it really you know, goes back to almost that. My parents were doctors, both of them. And I remember when I was in the sixth form from school, my mum worked part time. And I suppose I was at school and I'd come back and my mum, excuse the accent, she was Scottish. She would come to offer me a schooner of sherry. So I'm having it about 17 years old. A wee schooner of sherry. That's a wee one, a bit of Harvey's Bristol Cream or Croft Original or whatever it was in those days with my mum. Every day, occasionally, my dad weren't big drinkers, but it was kind of, just me, I was in my school uniform. So it was really sort of normalised around that time. And, you know, I kind of did the rite of passage at university and, you know, learned what snake bites meant and started different golden nectars. You know. Snake bites, oh, gosh, that takes me and, back. <laughs> oh, my goodness me, it takes me back. I didn't even know those words would come out of my mouth. <laughs> I think, really, when I joined the corporate world, and we're talking at the back end of the 80s, um, I joined the IT sector and it was wealthy, it was rich, it was all abundant. And my goodness, those boozy lunches, it wasn't just, it was part of what we did. It was just part of the culture. So when I moved to London, I was in Manchester, it was Manchester Union. I'd moved to London. I was in this exciting world of the IT sector with the boozy lunches. And it kind of just became part of what I did. I became that proverbial party girl, like, everybody who drinks often says you know that they were the party girl and through my 20s and my 30s I drank and drank and drank for fun but you know also for regularity and the only breaks I took in my 30s were when I was pregnant and fortunately I had three pregnancies so actually probably gave my body you know more than a couple of years rest during that period mm. I think for me there were, there were two catapults or, or catalysts rather catapults around my accelerated drinking and what became my everyday drinking one of them was um well for want of a better word my success at work because I, I was an HR director I was a learning and development director I became more and more senior seniority and being in the minority as a woman and in one organization I was on the board of the organization and almost the expectation of my performance it was all in my head really you know that was kind of some sort of catalyst set up the drinking and then um you know and, and it, when it wasn't it's really to harm big harms effect now I know I was harming myself. And now I view that alcohol is almost a form of self-harm. But I was doing it as a way of relieving my stress and almost like a social lubricant, but as a boardroom lubricant as well. Not, not during the day, but, you know, something to, to be able to make me manage those. The second thing that happened was I was very much um, 
sort of sandwich generation mum when I was in my early 50s and late late 40s. So elderly parents and mum and dad, because I mentioned before, were doctors, because they were doctors, they perhaps had their children a little bit later. So they were a bit older. And so my mum, bless her, had Parkinson's disease. And then my father-in-law died and my mother-in-law came to live with us. And I promise you there is no blame here and none of the sort of don't know who it is is it Benny Hill or Les Dawson mother-in-law jokes but you know if I had my time again I'd do it again I'd have my mother-in-law here but I'd set different boundaries boy that was a big catalyst to the drinking mm. you know she was disabled it was uh, god bless her she, she's now she's now gone as well bless her I'm, I'm officially an older generation um Having the sort of sandwich generation piece, I felt I was I was having to do everything. You know, I'd, I'd lost my parents. My mother-in-law was living with us. Same time, my teenage daughter, my youngest, and so when she was pre-teens, was diagnosed with OCD. And I'm terribly grateful that we were able to get that done because she's living an incredible life now mm. and she was not living an incredible life at the time. And uh, yeah, I just was that sandwich, you know, mm. absolutely. And the thing that helped me to put more of the meat in my sandwich, or so I thought, was Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah. And that became my, my really my golden nectar of choice, my stress reliever of choice. Mm. And what happened in terms of the quitting was... I just didn't like myself. Again, I'm going to bring the mother-in-law into this because she was living with us. God bless her. She was in a wheelchair. And I found myself not being particularly kind to her. We had carers coming into the house and I'd resent them coming into my kitchen. I'd resent, you know, they were making her a cup of tea when I, my daughter would be home or my son would be home from school and I'd be wanting to have a chat with them. And I felt it was an intrusion. And yet it had been my choice and my husband's choice to bring her into the house. So the reality was, and a lot of people say this, there wasn't really a single rock bottom moment, but there were many, many moments of really not liking the Jill that I was becoming, really being incongruent with the sort of natural, kind, compassionate, sort of vivacious, curious person that I really am. Um, and living in an incongruent way and in a misaligned way is really ghastly. I was really compromising my values and living against those. And that was why I decided to quit. Yeah, so six and a half years ago, that decision came. And I'm so glad I was able to do that while she was still alive. There was a bit of a deal around it. She was a whiskey drinker. I mean, I'm not kidding it, but she she liked her whiskey. It helped, I'm sure it helped her with her pain. But the mm. deal was no wine at dinner, you know. And, and my husband, God bless him, he said, and it wasn't part of, I didn't ask him to, he said, it was in a march. And he said, um, I will support you by not drinking for until we go on holiday, which was booked for the July and which was really really helpful and then we didn't have we didn't serve wine in the house for a few months i hated whiskey anyway and so margaret could carry on drinking her whiskey perfectly happily and um it was wonderful we were um of course it was hard i wouldn't say it was easy but i was certainly able to let's i was going to say re-establish my relationship with my mother-in-law but i'll start with re-establish my relationship with myself you know, I think that really mattered. And it was great. You know, sadly, Margaret died. But, you know, we had a couple of years of me not drinking and her drinking whiskey. And she was allowed to go back on red wine after we came back from a holiday. Wow, yes. that's thank you. That's yeah. an amazing story. And I think you really touched on something when you talked about your relationship with yourself as opposed to with others. Yeah. And how would you say, I mean, and then I'm also curious about the March to July 
and how you sort of managed with no wine and how wonderful your husband support you as well so um so maybe we talk about a bit about how you went about doing that in those sort of three four months of of not drinking and how that felt and um maybe we start there and, and then we can go from there yeah, well, you know, six and a half years ago, there was there was actually very little in terms of sober support, e- even on you know Instagram. There was a little bit, and the the one the Bible at the time around quitting drinking was Annie Grace's This Naked Mind. And then when I read that, I discovered all sorts of other things as well. So what happened was, I really don't know why it was a Monday, but one Monday I said to my husband this has got to stop god bless him you know he he's, he was so fantastic around the whole thing told me in that conversation that he'd been stepping on eggshells for ages because knew that if he'd said anything about my drinking that i'd blow up you know masses of denial and you know sort of blaming his mother probably and the children and the dogs and anything else i could blame certainly not myself mm-hmm. you know and i it was one monday i just sort of said i i am going to stop and i am going to need your support and again i don't know where this came from i said i'm going to give myself two weeks don't know why it was two weeks. Two weeks to research, two weeks to really look at what I can do, what other people have done. And I think, you know, Annie Grace was the, the Bible in those days. And I so I got her um her book. I also joined a website, it's still going strong, Lucy Rocker's um Soberistas uh, website, which is has got thousands and thousands of members um, across the globe. Mm. Uh, now it's not a Facebook group, it's hosted out, you know, in, in, in another place, it's a very safe place. So it was a community. I, I joined that community. Um, I didn't think I wanted to join AA because I didn't think I was an A. If you know what I mean, yeah, we can talk yeah. about that later, maybe. Yeah. Um, and I'm totally in awe of what that as an organisation has done for millions of people worldwide. But it didn't feel right to me for 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 many you know for many reasons. Um, I wanted to do it at my own pace. I wanted to feel in charge. I wanted to feel in control. And the really interesting thing was that on that Monday, and it didn't happen until it was actually. not even two weeks I think it was something like 11 days I don't know when I actually stopped on that Monday I made a decision and it was that that to me has really really been something that's held me very strong and something I talked to my clients about I made a single decision and I remember that mattered to me because years ago I'd seen you know the comedian Frank Skinner I'd seen him interviewed on, it was either Graham Norton or Jonathan Ross, one of the big chat shows. Yeah. And I remember him talking about his his relationship with alcohol, his alcoholism, and how he'd quit for over a decade. Every morning was torture. You know, he he really lived by this one day at a time, every morning. And I thought, I can't do this. I don't want every day of my life to be torture. I can't do the white knuckling. Mm. And, I, and I'd experienced white knuckling before because I'd done the occasional dry January and, you know, waited up until midnight on February the 1st. That's no joke. And, you know, so I could have a glass of wine. And so that was a white knuckle. I didn't want that. So that Monday I made a single decision. And that's when my husband was, I mean, he was very emotional about it. And he was hugely supportive. I don't know to this day, because I haven't asked him whether he had any doubts, you know, whether I could do it, or maybe he saw the fire in my belly and the determination. Bear in mind, I was pretty low because part of my motivation was 
you know, I didn't really like myself, mm. you know, and, and that's sort of, you know, a real away from motivation rather than moving towards something beautiful, which I I, I started to find as I did my re- research during that, that two weeks or the 11, the 11 days. Mm. So Annie Grace was a great influence on me. So baristas, it was, I think what's really interesting, I knew intellectually I wasn't the only one who was having this, these doubts and these problems going onto a community website made me know know in my heart and my gut as well as in my brain that I wasn't the only one and that other people were suffering in the same way as I was they were struggling and that they were finding amazing support and relief and accountability and all sorts of other stuff from being part of a community so I can't thank Lucy Rocker enough for Soberistas mm-hmm. um that that was one of the the great things that that in that, in that two-week period and going forward that really helped me to to know I wasn't alone and to know that my question was held you know I, I could ask anything and it was never going to be stupid because I knew that that anything I asked there were a hundred people around the globe or a thousand people around the globe who also wanted to have the answer to that question from people who'd experienced it before you know other people had had the same experience so it was it was tricky because I was craving I was you know warning my beautiful serving and blanc you know all the rest of it honestly truly because I was so aligned to my decision I knew I would succeed and there wasn't any white knuckling, no white knuckling required. Mm. You know, it was, I I think because I had that beautiful support at home with my husband and his mum, because she was the other adult around Mm. and my kids, I was very open with my kids who, you know, my my son was at university at the time and and my, probably my middle one, my daughter had just gone. So I had one at home incredibly proud of me actually which is very interesting mm. and I think that helped as well so I had a lot of lovely support and motivation around me at home um but I also Annie Annie's book taught me about self-care and a massive aha was how self-care if I'd ever if those words had ever left my lips it would have been literally just lip service you know I hadn't you know, really, as a coach, when I look back and I've been talking about things with my my clients, and we're talking pre sober coaching. I was, I was, I was, you know, business coaching and mindset coaching. Um, it's, it's, I find it extraordinary that I was the classic person who didn't apply these things to myself. You know, it's like the the, the doctors who go and smoke in the staff room, and, and you know, sorry, I'm not berating the medical community, but you know, is that and yet they tell their their patients. My dad was my dad smoked, you know, he'd, and he'd tell his he's because he was a gynecologist. He he'd tell his pregnant women to stop smoking and you know to protect the baby, and then he'd come home and smoke goodness knows how many Benson and Edges or, or his pipe in the later years. You know, I was that that person who just didn't know what self care was. So I think. I started to be really kind to myself and that's how I did it you know kind in terms of giving myself time in terms of giving myself little treats um you know really allowing myself to be loved and supported by my husband I do recognize how very lucky I was to have that space with him and I was really held I know not everyone has that um yeah, and it's um, it's been an extraordinary journey ever since. I think what I can say between that March and July period before we went on holiday was all of a sudden the colour came into my life. And I know that sounds a bit math, but I actually really felt that I was living my life in 
shades of grey and not the Fifty Shades of Grey variety. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, I was living a sort of dulled down life, but I didn't think I was at the time. It was only that gift of hindsight that allowed me to really know it. You know, I think I did know it at the time, but I was in this such denial, such, I was hiding from it. But um, I wouldn't allow myself to see the truth because I was scared of the journey that I would need to take. And the journey wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be because mm. I started to be able to feel some very different emotions like pride and sense of achievement, you know, and, and some pretty tricky ones as well because you feel the feels when you give up the alcohol and you don't, you don't numb it down anymore, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yeah, amazing. And I and I, I love that the colour came back into your life. I think that's really an important point to raise because, you know, we all use out we all you know, use used alcohol to numb emotions and to help us if we're feeling stressed or if we're, you know, feeling anxious or there's grief or, you know, it's a good way of numbing that negative emotion but actually what we're actually doing is numbing all our emotions so the positive emotions as well as the negative and you're not really experiencing the joy or the just life in in general and so when you say you had a dulled life that's absolutely due to the fact that's what alcohol does really so yeah um, exactly so I mean you describe it so beautifully it's I think for me I stopped noticing I'd stopped Mm. noticing the the beauty of the world around me you know the little things and even the little things in what one would traditionally describe as being challenging so for instance my my daughter coming and talking to us about her her problems and her challenges that ended up with a diagnosis a diagnosis of OCD my goodness how blooming lucky are we that we have a child who will come and talk to us about this that's joyful for me and that we are able to help her and guide her in her young life to somewhere she's more supported mm. you know so I, I, I missed out on so many of those connections with with myself and with with the whole experience of life mm. when I was drinking yeah, yeah. and it sounds amazing because I think one of the one of the things that puts people off taking a break um from alcohol is what's going to happen in my relationships and what one of yes. my episodes I we do talk to, I do talk to my husband and we we discuss this but yes. from your perspective you, you know you kept saying you were very lucky that your husband was so supportive and then your children as well were really proud of you which is fantastic there are you know there are people that are going to be listening someone's going to be listening thinking well I yeah don't know if that's going to be the case yes. and you touched on self-care and so maybe it'd be interesting to get your perspective on and the relationship with self so even if that is the case what what advice would you give that person to to carry on yes I think that um the, the best piece of self-care you can give to yourself if you are considering or you've got to the point where you know that quitting alcohol is the right thing for you is to stay strong in your decision. Yeah. It might upset the apple car. In fact, all the apples might fall over and, you know, trip everybody up, you know, but I would honestly say who gives a monkeys. And that's the polite way of saying it. Look, I get that. It's really hard. I know I had a supportive environment. One of my clients had going through my 12 week program on week eight, her husband said, you know, you, well, you've proved it now you can start drinking again, mm. you know, and, and, and it wasn't, 
was interesting from her perspective on interesting she was desperately hurt because she didn't feel witnessed she didn't feel heard you mm -hmm. know she didn't feel supported um and she also didn't feel complimented you know mm -hmm. We we know this, Dupi. We you and I have talked about this before. That often, when if, if we make a wonderful decision for ourselves, a decision for ourselves, it does hold the mirror up to other people mm. who may not want you to take that decision mm. because they think that it's going to change your relationship with them, and also it might change their own perspective or make have to face up to their own drinking. It's 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 really very com, com, uh, complex. But what I would say, one hundred percent, is when I did fall into this trap a little bit myself with uh, with my friends, because not one of my friends said well done. Not one, it was it was extraordinary. I was actually deeply deeply hurt. Mm. Is you know you can either change your friends, that's a bit binary, isn't it? Or you can spend your life defending yourself. Don't justify. Don't defend. Be proud of yourself for your decision. Because this might be, it's probably difficult to say in a way, but let's just get it out there. This could be a tricky journey for you in a way. You know, you might feel some cravings. You might be mourning some stuff. You, you know, working out who you are, alcohol-free, is quite a beautiful journey, but it can also be quite a, a tricky and emotional journey as well. Focus your energy on that rather than on other people who are tending to give a flying monkeys about what you have in your glass you know that's their stuff that's not your stuff you know you'll need your energy for you and your alignment your congruence your grounding and let's first start off with a big wonderful well done pat on the back that you've made this decision and if nobody else is going to say it say it to yourself in the mirror every single day i think it was mel robbins who said um high five yourself in the mirror every morning you know what it seems daft at first but do it because if nobody else is going to high five you do it to yourself you'll see see your smile see your pride allow yourself to see that because you're making the best decision for your health yourself your future it's just wonderful because it's a journey of discovery yeah mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah it, unfortunately, there's no magic formula with this. And, you know, the vast majority of my clients have some form of support at home, but not universally, mm -hmm. you know, and there is a degree of impatience, you know, are you when are you going to give up this nonsense or Christmas is coming up or it's my birthday or we're going to this wedding, uh, you know, I hope you're going to drink champagne. What? What? you toast a bride and groom with one of the most beautiful alcohol-free drinks around what other thing you like to drink tea why can't you where's the rule from that it's a rule in our head you know we can change those rules well said jill yes <laughs> start a movement today i think we should the cup of tea movement Indeed. Indeed. No, I remember, I'm sure people used to say you can't cheers with a non-alcoholic drink, you know, <laughs> it's sort of like crazy now to think about it. Um, and I, I think that was, you know, I can't really add to that. I think that was brilliant. So um, if people don't know what self-care is, and you said yeah. that was making a decision in the, in yeah. the um, and, and I think you know self-care is sort of setting boundaries and saying no and all of that sort of stuff but for me I remember before discovering what self-care really was and being you know becoming alcohol free I thought self-care was going to a spa day and having a glass yeah. of champagne that was my self-care yeah. um, <laughs> so so for if, if 
for the person that's listening that's thinking well what is self-care what what would you say self-care is I think that self-care is anything that grounds you into the moment, anything that brings you back to the present. So, yes, it can be practices like meditation and hugging trees if you want to. Now, I was the archetypal roll your eyes person when anybody mentioned the word meditation. I've done a bit of study since then, actually. And, um, you know, I might use the word breathing, but I'm kind of quite into it these days because I really know and have felt the, the benefits it offers. But for me, it's anything that allows you to feel really aligned and present with yourself in that moment that gives you the opportunity to be still and to be calm so it could take the way that that it could take the shape of anything um it can be doing things so it can be knitting or quilting or crocheting you know it can be using different senses so it can be walking it can be looking at the sky the constellations the, the full moon it can be um sensing and feeling in different ways it can be reading so using your eyes it can be taking up a new hobby so you know art or, or crafting it could be or running i mean i was the archetypal cliche when i quit drink i wrote a book and i took up running in my 50s but i jo- i call them my sober friends and weren't the sober friends but because we ran in the morning i joined a beginner's class we ran in the morning and then went to for a coffee and a cake they they were my sober friends because I never went out in the evenings with them it could be joining a new club it doesn't have to be community it could be joining a community it could be something on your own it could be having a new haircut it could be doing your nails and it could be a spa day but not with the champagne you know it could be anything and it doesn't have to cost money I think that's really important is you know I was like you Dupe I think my perception of what self-care was was those expensive early treatments and you know having a facial every week it doesn't have to cost money it's it's you time it's you choice it's what do you want what makes you feel good so one of the things I do and I've I've, 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 I've turned up the volume on me and um, since I gave up drinking um I live in West London and we've got quite a, an international community nearby one of the things that I can't sew at all or dressmake or anything but one of the things that fills me with absolute joy and pleasure is going down South Hall High Street and looking at saris and I I honestly it is for me it just brings me so much joy in the smells because we absolutely adore Indian food it's I I love the the vibrancy of of street is I've got diplomacy of a gold pair of shoes it's it's so interesting and I never have given I've always loved colours and fabrics you know Don Lewis fabric department is a sensory joy for me even though I don't sew but since I quit the drinking I actually consciously think oh I think I'll have a self all day and that to me is a self-care practice because I'm filling my eyes with colour and I mean shopping can be although we have to be aware of cross addictions because that's yes. often, often the case you know Very good point. but mm-hmm. you know it's, it is interesting that's self-care having a coffee with a friend you know walking around the park you know anything for me is self-care that grounds you oh and i will add journaling whatever mm-hmm. i mean that's compulsory yeah i'm yeah. going to put that in as an absolute must do but anything that grounds you in the moment allows you space to breathe and just think about the magic of the moment is self-care yeah no that's that's great and and it is it's just that it's it can be the tiniest of things and and I love the point of it doesn't need to cost anything it is you know just looking at the stars or 
cloud formations or anything like that so love that yeah that's no that's it's so true and um hopefully if you're listening and you're wondering you know what self-care practice i can do there's a plethora there to go after well done jill there was a big list so fantastic. come and join me on south hall high street it's beautiful <laughs> yeah amazing amazing and so um i wanted to touch on the uh, the fact that you said you weren't going to go down the aa route mm. and i know that you've got a very exciting talk coming up and it's going to be about the stigma around society about sobriety sorry in Mm. society and and I think it would be really good to get your take on that so there are lots of lots of ways now to stop drinking which don't involve AA which I imagine even six and six and a half years ago you talked about soberistas but there wouldn't have been many of those I wouldn't have thought at the time not six and a half years ago so yeah and and so that whole stigma and potential shame and guilt around drinking and not really again wanting to say you're stopping because people will potentially go to you must have hit had a rock bottom moment or you must have something must have gone dreadfully wrong or whatever there isn't a and to your point about you know no one really saying well done to you and your friends friendship group yeah there is a whole piece there around not wanting to stop drinking, even if you know deep down you do for whatever reason. And, you know, I think we touch, you know, I talk a lot about the grey area drinker and, yes. you know, Jolene Park's phrase and yes. the fact that actually we're all grey area. We were all grey area drinkers and yes. the majority of people who are listening are grey area drinkers, um, which is effectively someone who isn't teetotal and abstainer or isn't, yes. hasn't hit rock bottom. Yes. So... I'd love to hear more about your view on and maybe get a sneak peek of your talk. But, um, you know, the stigma around sobriety and yes. for someone who might be listening and thinking, I do know I want to do this. And, yes. But but I won't because of X, Y and Z. Um, yes. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a massive subject. I'm really glad you've raised that. Thank you, uh, Dupe. I think... The AA thing is interesting to me, um, I, mainly because of the, the A. I think I mentioned that that before, that um, that word alcoholic, mm. I mean, in that word, it, it brings up, and I know I'm not on my own here, so much potential shame that, you know, I allowed, hypothetically, my life to get to the stage where I was an alcoholic. Mm. You know, it's really interesting. This country, we don't use the word alcoholic anymore we talk about alcohol use disorder Mm. and I still think that it's you know the the terminology you use gray area drinking is actually more useful you know that we we utilize it we think about it on a on a sort of continuum from the the don't drinker to the people who would need medical intervention so I am absolutely put this out there I'm an absolute advocate of AA for for millions of people it's helped millions of people around the world and it is it's free it's available and you can go now you can go anywhere you can go you know all, all around the country I have to I, I, I one of my friends who was a superb inspiration to me um she's actually um, a sort of family friend 
from years ago. Um, she's, I think she's around 13 years sober now and she still goes to her AA meetings and she lives in Scotland. And she said to me, I do like coming down to London because I like to go to the Eaton Square one because it's totally good. We go to lunch in Chelsea afterwards. <laughs> So it was very, very funny. But but it's really sad. I talked to her quite a lot around around this, particularly in terms of their their 12 steps. And from my my background perspective, um, my background's in neuroscience and um, in training and development. And for a number of years, I helped teach coaches to integrate and use neuroscience in their work. And there was something just that felt a little bit incongruent to me, to me personally, around potentially going to a meeting and saying hello my name is Jill and I'm an alcoholic and always saying that because that's giving your message to your brain that I'm still an alcoholic and you know for me it just felt I don't want to be saying those words um, now I know they've changed it now I understand from my, my friend that it's, it's, it's different um, and it depends also on your definition around the word recovery recovering alcoholic as well because somebody challenged me the other day and said but surely surely if you're recovered you can have a drink and I found that really interesting as a sort of philosophical conversation you know it's um I don't know if I can answer that now but I didn't not go to AA because I felt there was a stigma around AA but interestingly, I felt I wasn't bad enough for AA. Mm. So I'm stigmatizing AA in that very sentence. Mm. And that's that, that's what's really interesting to me personally, um, and why um, I feel very lucky to have secured a TED talk in uh, TEDx talk in Edinburgh in a couple of weeks' time. Would have probably be done by the time you, you publish this um podcast, because I wanted to talk about stigma and about how even in my sobriety. I felt that I didn't, I didn't realize it until relatively recently that I was perpetuating the stigma of sobriety because I would be saying to those naughty friends of mine who never said, well done, Jill, you know, who were, they were curious about my sobriety, but they kind of thought, oh, come on, Jill, it's my party coming up, you know, it's a blast, don't be done. And one, one friend still, even now, six and a half years on, thrusts a glass into my hand say go on you can do it now where does that come from you know I'm very 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 good friends with his wife otherwise he'd be off the Christmas card list let me tell you that <laughs> but I you know I, I found myself defending myself and almost diluting this amazing transformation I'd made for my health for my life you know just kind of like turn, turning it down and turning the volume down on it you know I wasn't going into every party and shouting you know Hello, I'm sober. Look at me. I'm still a party girl. I wasn't doing that. Still, when people were curious enough and interested enough to ask me questions, I wanted to be able to answer properly. And I found that I was in a sort of justification mode. Mm. But what was really interesting to me about this stigmatizing was I found myself defending myself and saying things like, I wasn't that bad. I didn't drink vodka. You know, I only drank wine. It was that lot who drank vodka. So all of a sudden, you know, it was the other people, you know, not me. I didn't go and have a brown paper bag in my desk drawer. You know, I didn't have that. So it wasn't me. It was those awful people who had brown paper bags. So in my sobriety, I was perpetuating that stigma in order to make myself feel better and in, in justifying my decision. So that's what I'm calling out. Mm. is that actually I think we really need to start to have really open and honest conversations about what drinking means um and what sobriety means for mm. people um and even for sober people to understand that 
rarely intentionally, rarely intentionally, that we can continue to stigmatise other people who are struggling with their drinking. And that's not really supporting them. Mm. Um, and in fact, you know, I felt quite ashamed of myself when I recognised that, you know, the shame that I'd felt when I was drinking came back to revisit me mm. when I, in my sobriety, because I had this realisation that I might have been even perpetuating that stigma. So that's what my talk is about, is about, you know, human connection and kindness and compassion and recognising that stigma itself is silencing. So a lot of people who feel the stigma of drinking, they start to hide and that's where denial comes from then when they're hiding from themselves but you know I actually physically hid things you know, quite literally about three months ago I found one of those little bottles of wine in my underwear drawer which I'm quite ashamed to say from the perspective of it shows I hadn't cleared out my underwear drawer for six and a half years so you know that may, maybe you know there's a lesson in that as well but you know it, it's I was physically hiding things you know so I could go and have a quick you know drink of my wine um so that's okay so it's it's, it's an interesting this whole stigma thing I think I, I really want to call it out because I feel that we all have particularly as sober people you know a voice and we all have a all this duty to be able to support everyone recognize that People standing next to us in the queue at the bus stop or on the tube line, you know, I, I live in London, so I get the tube. Um, they might be suffering in silence. They might be wanting to give up drinking or, or numbing things out with drinking, but not knowing where to go to start mm. to have that conversation. You know, I really want to be this podcast you're doing is wonderful because what we're doing is we're talking about alcohol, sobriety, the damage that it can do to us and how and now I'm talking about defending my sobriety and justifying it. I think these things need to be out in the open because unless we have the conversations how can we put stigmas to bed how mm. can we stop people hiding how can we help people with the human nature of denial when they feel personal shame about something yeah and it's a really good point and i do think um we do all have those stigmas and it i, I you know when you said oh i i didn't drink vodka i was drinking wine you know it's all the same really um but you know you sort of sit there and you you can just and it and it is more of a justification and then to your point around people wanting to thrust drinks in you again they're justifying their own relationship with with alcohol as well yeah. um I, the shame piece is is an interesting topic because I do think, you know, I say to <clears throat> I say to clients and to not think about all the sort of things that you did when you were drinking in the early days and things that you might regret or feel some guilt or shame around. Um, the first thing is really important to, you know, to do the self-care and to just not drink. And that's a huge achievement in itself. But yeah. as you go through and you become more comfortable um, in that alcohol-free identity, things are going to come up and you do start thinking about emotions and managing those emotions. And that's a topic that I cover quite uh, quite a lot in coaching and, and in my book as well. And so, um, but I think it's really easy to to then feel shame and to feel feel that guilt and then not know what to do with that and yes. that could potentially 
take you down the rabbit hole of actually I don't want to go there so I'm going to yeah grab a drink mm-hmm. how do you what are the sort of maybe tips that you see um, around that that people can do instead when those feelings come up yeah absolutely I I, it's a it's a massive topic and I and I totally agree with you in the early days you know it's enough to to stop and Mm. congratulate yourself and and really load yourself with self-care and 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 good thoughts you know because as we move on through through our new identity alcohol free those emotions will come up you know guilt and shame are oh they're nasty little beasts you know they are corrosive and they they also pop up in the most inopportune moments you know in, in really unexpectedly as well so you know i don't believe ultimately in suppressing them i do believe that it, it's it's very a very useful exercise when you're supported by somebody such as yourself or myself to start to be able to 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 bring up some of those feelings and to be able to accept them. And that's really the process I go through it and in, in my my program. Um, and you know, I've talked about this before. Yet this is not a formula. You know, it's not like a management theory formula or leadership behavior for it's not, it's not a formula because it's different from everybody. You know, we all have our own unique experience. We also have our own um, definition of what and shame mean and how we feel them how deeply we feel them and, and that so much of that depends on our our past experiences and our, our personal makeup and our resilience as well and the boundaries we have all of all of those things as well but i i also one of the things that i would always always say with the self-care you you talked about this a wee bit before um is boundaries boundaries are one of the most the best things that you can put in place in terms of your own self-care um and i think when we've got some personal boundaries and some of those we're, we're starting to live within them and we're able to really embed them into our lives we might be a little bit more ready to start to deal with the the, the guilt and the shame um, and it's not about dredging up every single thing it's about being able to accept and forgive and again, that's not a formula. So, you know, guilt and shame are slightly different. Guilt tends to be an emotion that we feel when we've done something so we can potentially undo it um, or we can, in the AA terminology, make amends for it, you know, an apology or if, if we wish to. Again, it's not a formula and not all things that we feel guilty for necessitate an apology or even revisiting mm. you know it's usually something we've done a behavior that we've done to somebody else yeah um so where shame is something that we embed as part of our identity so i am a bad person versus i did a bad thing mm. doing a bad thing is more guilt i am a bad person is a message you're giving to yourself um, and that manifests in shame and one of i think one of the most beautiful things that i've learned about um shame um is you know, I mean you'll be familiar with this author i'm really keen on brené brown yeah. um and i mean i've discovered her with her whole vulnerability thing mm-hmm. on ted and then i bought her first book daring greatly and she's i just love her language i also love the fact that she's research based i'm really into research and the whole science and mix of science and spirituality and i, I love the research that's behind it she's done a lot of research into shame and I'm going to just read you this quote, and I've got it because it's part of my TED talk. I'm going to be talking about it there. I love this. She says, if you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three ingredients to grow exponentially. Secrecy, silence and judgment. 
if you put the same amount of shame in the petri dish and douse it with empathy, it can't survive. So I think that this is beautiful Brené Brown language. And to me, self-compassion, empathy for self first, is the way to be able to move for to, towards um, reconnecting and to be able to move towards forgiveness of yourself. You know, I often use the sort of um, common coaching method of, you know, what would you say to your best friend? So almost a third person view. We're so much kinder to our friends when, even if they've done something nasty to us, you know, when they when they've, when they've done something they feel guilty for or ashamed about, we're so much kinder to them than we are to our friends. Mm. So, so you know, start to feel, you know, Talk to yourself as though you are your best friend is one of the, the, the ways that we we can we can start to learn. And it is a learning to be kinder to ourselves and bring on some self-compassionate some compassion. It isn't a formula. It needs practice. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. And it's so true. I think um we're our worst critics, aren't we? And we are the inner critic can really take over in some ways. And so being able to be compassionate and have empathy for yourself, as you, as you say, is, is really important. And having those tools and resources to enable you to do that. Um, yeah. and, and as you say, it's, you know, secrecy, secrecy silence, judgment. That's, that's what stops a lot of people from, from moving forward. Absolutely, so, and and again, it's the silence of this, uh, the silence of stigma. Exactly. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. hiding, and mm. when we're hiding, we're not our best selves, and we're not going to take proactive action. Yeah, yeah. No, great points. Great points. Um. Okay, so if we if we move on to, and that was a really, I'm, I'm mindful that was a really tough subject and yes if anyone was listening to that um you know I think support is key and maybe joining you know doing some sort of co coaching counseling therapy if that's needed um but don't sit in silence and don't be alone in this at all um it's it's a tricky one it is a tricky it, 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 it is a really and there are things that come back from years and years yeah. Um, yeah. ago that could potentially come up and so yes. yeah I, I, you know I'm, I'm very aware you know with my talk and with, with even with this podcast and I know you'll you, you'll you deal with this is that they can also be triggering they can be very helpful mm. but they can be triggering for people mm. so you know what I love about your podcast UK is the fact that it's offering a safe space for people to explore and I yeah. think that really yeah. matters mm. but I think the message of don't suffer in silence is really important now six and a half years since I've I quit the booze there are so many more support groups available so many more podcast books you know your book is amazing there's Thank so you. much support there for people that do really do not have to be alone yeah. and I promise <laughs> you to any listener you are not alone you're not alone. You know, contact one of us as a first instance. You're not alone at all. Absolutely. No, thank you, Jill. And talking about books, Ooh. you've obviously got your book stuck, which I can see behind you, um, which you wrote a while ago. And well, at the big early days when you were uh, when you decided to stop drinking, which is very exciting. Right. But you have another book that's coming out uh, soon-ish. Yeah. Um, yeah. So do you want to I talk? Soon-ish. <laughs> do you want to tell us a bit about that book? 
Yes, thank you. So I, I will just mention about my previous book. You know, I had no intention necessarily of it being a, a bestseller or whatever. You know, it, for me, it was my one of my vehicles of self-care to sobriety. Mm. I wrote at five o'clock in the afternoon, which is when my body clock went, it's one o'clock time. So, you know, I discovered the love of writing through that, which was a gift that sobriety has given me. And now I'm ready to um, put out my book in the world about uh, my my sobriety journey. But it's not a memoir. It's really, um, it's based on my um, three-month program. Um, and there's quite a lot of neuroscience in it because that's my my background. I've worked in the neuroscience field for with my business partner, uh, training co coaches and trainers in applied neuroscience for 10 years or 12 years, actually. And um, so the book is Freedom, Design the Alcohol Free Life of Your Dreams. And it is about how to make that decision, that single decision, and what to do thereafter. Yeah, before getting ready for it and thereafter. And so it, it will join the many, many um, shelf fulls of quit lit books. I think that's the common genre that, it's got, that, are, that are available now. But I'm delighted about that. Delighted that there are so many books that people can can um, can read to become more mindful, to start to make a decision for themselves um, and then to get on the journey to, get, to, to really have it as a support on their bedside table. So there's, there's, yeah, so I've got my own methodology that I talk about in there um, and it's full of um, some client examples as well. And I've, I've, I'm doing I'm in the middle. The reason it's not out yet is I'm in the middle of doing some research around it um, so that that'll be some new stuff that's embedded within the book. Yeah. Fantastic. I can't wait to read that. So, um, yeah, I'm very excited about that. And it does feel like it's the year of the quitlet. There's so many people that are sharing their their new books this year and in yeah. you know in the coming I know early next year as well so um it's really exciting and to your point there you know even three years ago when I stopped there weren't that as many books as there are now and so people have a real choice of you know as you say educating yourself but also if you're just curious and you just want to see something different and you might be thinking of doing something different but just by reading a book that doesn't mean you have to but it gives you some you know it sort of educates and gives you a different perspective and it's always good to hear other people's stories as well and something will resonate potentially that might um trigger you to to make a decision as uh, as Jill says and that decision could change your exactly. life yeah and it can it can do and it will do if you make that choice you know but it's not preachy and yours is your book isn't preachy either because i really i really hold you know that this this whole area around choice you know sobriety for me has given me choice um and but it's also our choice whether or not we want to make that decision or not and i just want to remind everybody that it is a choice you know we all have that choice available to us right now we might not think we have we really really have yeah and and in a way it's also you know you can give yourself permission to do this and yeah no one needs to give you permission to do it you can make that choice and sometimes I think you need to hear that and so thank you for reiterating that Jill that's really important okay so gosh I mean I could talk to you forever and I love our conversations and I'm, you know you've been so generous with your time so thank you for for being a guest and as always we're going to end with my favorite question what does thriving alcohol-free mean to you? 
well, I think I might have given the game away with my previous comment. <laughs> so for me, without a shadow of doubt, it is around freedom and choice. I didn't realise how tightly locked the shackles were on my own life until I quit the booze. I, I really didn't know how I was holding myself back. I mean, maybe I did intellectually, but I didn't really know in my heart and my gut how I was playing small, how I was holding myself back, how I was avoiding doing some great things in life. You know, like walking around the park at lunchtimes. Again, it doesn't have to cost anything. Like, you know, going and seeing Take that three times in one concert tour, whatever it is, you know, that may not be everybody's choice, but it's choice and freedom. I did not know how much I'd limited myself when I was drinking. Was mm -hmm. that that the limiting came a pattern for me? And mm -hmm. I didn't know that until I was free of it. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's about the answer to the question is really clear. It's freedom and choice. Absolutely. It's wonderful at my great age to have those in my life. It's like being reborn. Fantastic. Thank you. That's, um, yeah, that, let's end on that. I think that's fantastic. So freedom and choice is the way to go. And you'll definitely discover that if you make a decision to take a break and potentially become alcohol free. So thank you again. And is there anything you want to leave with the listener um now and also you know how do people get in touch with you oh yes thank you so so i'm um on linkedin so linkedin is probably the the best way to get in touch with me and also you're very welcome to to visit my my website as well i i do a little bit on instagram but i'm certainly not as prolific as thrive alcohol free you know <laughs> As, as do pay so but linkedin is a really good way to to um, get in touch with me um through that the messaging there or, or through my my website and I, I think i'm just going to repeat because there's nothing wrong with re reinforcement is that um i'm going to leave you with freedom and choice and it really is a gift it's a gift you can always choose to give to yourself absolutely brilliant thank you jill really appreciate it take care it's been a pleasure thank you so much for inviting me well, thank you so much, Jill, for being a guest on Thrive Alcohol Free podcast. It was amazing to talk to you and um, just really enjoyed the conversation. And I know there may have been some points that were quite triggering for you as a listener, but, um, you know, do please, if if that was the case, feel free to, to reach out for help and get some support um, as you need. Um, but thank you, Jill. Really appreciate you being on. And um, if you are interested in getting in touch with Jill, all the details are in the show notes below. And of course, if um, you'd like to read my book, A Cocktail of Clarity, um, How to Ditch Drinking, Embody a Joyful New Identity and Thrive Alcohol Free, which Jill mentioned, kindly mentioned earlier, um, then it is available on Amazon, on paperback and on Kindle. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode and um, you got something out of it. And I hope you have a really good week and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Take care. Thank you so much for listening to the Thrive Alcohol Free podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe so you get alerted every time I drop a new episode. I'd love it if you could rate, review and share this episode. 
feel free to tag me on Instagram at thrivealcoholfree and follow me for daily tips. If you'd like to work with me, I offer one-to-one coaching sessions and have my signature Thrive Alcohol Free Society group coaching program. If you're not yet ready for coaching, I also have a self-paced online course, which is a companion to my book, A Cocktail of Clarity. All the links are in the show notes. I will see you in the next episode. Have a wonderful week. Take care.